Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I am Jay! And I am Kurt Fabish. <laughs> and this is our review of Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons, Charles Lofton, Peter Ustinov, John Gavin, and Tony Curtis. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1960 on a budget of $12 million to gross $60 million at the box office. Won four Academy Awards, though not for Best Actor, Best Picture, Best Director. One for other things. But uh, mm-hmm. this is an interesting one in our Kubrick retrospective here, Kurt, because it's the only one that Kubrick didn't have complete creative control over. He was brought in at the behest of Douglas because the original director, David Lean, turned it down. And then Anthony Mann, who had done like Winchester 73 and stuff like mm-hmm. that, shot for a week and Douglas felt like he didn't really get it and didn't get the scope of the picture. So he canned him and brought in Kubrick as a like, Hey, will you do me a favor, Stanley? I like you know, uh, my experience on Paths of Glory. And mm-hmm. you know, Kubrick battled with the screenwriter. He didn't like the material. He thought Spartacus, the character was too pure and perfect. He did. And, and really this is like the one film is that, he, it, you know, he didn't really like, he didn't like his, what he did out of it oh yeah kubrick he's flat out di- uh, disowned the film after that and it's like and it it really stands out watching you know uh, all i have left to see is lolita but like i've seen all when you watch all the movies it is so clear this movie is not a film that was conceived by kubrick like because kubrick you know he takes years between films years to come up with a good idea to, to make a movie and this is the exact opposite where he was just hired as a total workman director like uh, like any other schlub really. Yeah. Uh, and you can, and yeah, you can really tell that he did not he did not write it, he did not cast it. You know, he didn't approve of the set designs or the costume or this isn't his story and he definitely did not have control over the uh, the editing, you know, like his last movies were all under 90 minutes and this movie is three hours with the credits and the overture and intermission and stuff. Oh yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's three fifteen as, as it goes. And this was a time like nowadays, you know, we're recording this and releasing it in 2017. We're in the midst of the Marvel DC superhero, just Renaissance or genre hmm. push, right? In the 1950s and sixties, the big historically based epic, was that version of it. I mean, you had Ben-Hur, you had El Cid, who came after this, you had, uh, you know, all these movies, Lawrence of Arabia, Arabia would come out a couple of years after this. Um, all of these huge movies, greatest story ever told, Ten Commandments, you know, all those things that, oddly enough, we talked about some years back when you and Nick and I reviewed Gladiator. That's and, right. And watching this, what I didn't realize was how much Ridley Scott ripped off. <laughs> Out of this, I mean, I was like that. That's actually theft. I mean, so there's whole scenes that 
I'm like, well, that's just Spartacus redone. I feel about this the way that like Fincher talks about Alien Three. to say how Kubrick is with this one. It's, it, he didn't want anything to do with it. He's sorry he ever did it, and he wishes it would go away. So, uh, which is sad to say because it, while it doesn't have maybe the accolades, and and honestly, the critical acclaim at the time for it, people didn't really get it. They didn't like it. I mean, it made money because these things made money at the time, but. It, it it didn't get the praise that the other contemporary films like it got, and uh, maybe that's another reason too. This one kind of sticks out, but it is weird to think about Stanley Kubrick as director for hire, you know. But you know, you got to you got to do something. Yeah, and like again, like you know, I might, that might come up a few times. Like watching this movie as a Kubrick fan, it's 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 tough to watch thinking, man, like imagine it like, cause Kubrick, you know, he tends to do like, you know, he does a one movie of a different genre and he never touches that genre again. It's like, it's kind of a missed opportunity. It's like, man, it'd be awesome if like Kubrick came up with his own Roman epic of some kind with fictional characters or whatever it is. Like who knows what that would have been. Maybe it would have been a comedy or would have been something incredibly dark or not like Paz of glory or, or something black and white, but you know, but, but who knows instead we got this movie, which while was a, is a, a, so it's a it is a classic like like it or not like everyone knows this movie, but uh, but you know one guy who certainly doesn't like it was was Kubrick. I think most people knew it because of Douglas and and the rest of the cast yeah. and this cast is amazing and we'll talk about all of them but Douglas in particular I mean this was his passion project he read the book it's sort of based on and really got into it he got the the screenwriter write it and this was a big controversy at the time. This was a guy that had been blacklisted because he wouldn't do the whole name names in the mm-hmm. communist witch hunt of the McCarthy era. And, uh, you know, Douglas really went out on the limb, like, no, this guy's not going to be credited under a pseudonym. It's his. And I want his name on it. And this is ridiculous. And, you know, Kennedy was a fan of this film and helped kind of break down some of that stuff. But it's all got that, that historical context. And what's funny is you see that infused throughout the movie. There's so many, things in it where I feel like that's a red scare. Oh yeah. You know, discuss in all this you know, all the stuff, all the scenes and everything. We we'll get into those. But I, I do think it's neat though, and you talk about, you know, what if Kubrick had gone back to this. I mean there's some big scenes in Barry Lyndon we'll eventually talk about. But if if he had ever made the Napoleon movie he wanted to make, maybe we yeah. would have got it. Because, I mean, yeah. if you've heard our buddy John Jansen from the Hollywood Gauntlet talk about the making of that, and he's an expert mm-hmm. on it, uh, it's amazing the links that Kubrick went to. It was something he spent years doing, never got done, and then he turned around and did The Shining. So, yeah. you know, that, again, okay. So, but uh, had he ever got that one done, you know, maybe Napoleon would have been his big war epic or whatever. But even that, the plans for it, everything I've read about it, and I understand there's like books on it and stuff, but everything I've read about it was that it was going to be this big epic, but it was really going to be like this very small, you know, and narrow in on Napoleon himself. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't, you know, you don't get the standard Kubrick things in here. Uh, I do think you see some of it, some of the big sweeping shots and, and the really, there are some scenes when they're going over like all the saloon bodies and stuff. I feel like I was watching Paths of Glory just in color again. Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit, and, and definitely like this is a this is a very it's a very dialogue heavy movie, mm-hmm. uh, and you like you look at the second half of Kubrick's career, and they're very not dialogue heavy. Some of them have lots of dialogue, but like they're more they're very much like visual films, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like even something like Clockwork Orange, which is very story heavy. 
you, th- that is a movie you can almost turn the sound off and you can still, you know exactly what's going on. Right. I don't know if that's the case with, with Spartacus. There's a lot of like political intrigue. You gotta, you know, you really, for, for what is a pretty simple plot, you, you really do gotta pay attention, uh, uh, quite a bit for the whole, you know, uh, three hours. You gotta take a class in Roman history too, because I'm just gonna say oh, it right yeah. now, I'm I'm going to butcher a lot of names here, and that's just gonna be oh, as am I. Yeah, I may just wind up calling these people by the <laughs> actors playing them before it's all said. Possibly, yeah. may, maybe simpler than Smithsomiscus and all this other stuff because it gets a little. Yeah. It's it's kind of like trying to read out of the 1611 King James. I mean, it can be done, but I don't know why you'd want to. So, yeah. I mean, not in modern era, but it's, a, you know, though, that said, um, it, it's a long epic and it's a lot of exposition. And you're right. That's something that you don't get a lot of. I feel like that is the screenwriter and Douglas who really had a lot to say. And that's one of the things Kubrick didn't like was there's too much dialogue in this film. There's too much talking. There's too, this guy's way too this. There's that. Why? Nobody cares about any of this. And I think you can, you can, Look at the political intrigue in it, and I'm going, this would be the kind of thing that a guy like Aaron Sorkin would totally get off on. You know, it's his oh, yeah. kind of movie before he really was doing any, before he was even really doing anything, right? But it feels a lot like if if it were, if this was modern day, Sorkin would have been the one that wrote this. Pretty much, yeah. It's like, this movie, it's like, it's, it is, it's juggling a lot of balls, trying to be a, a couple different movies, and... I like I, I would say without a doubt the one if there's one part of this movie like if you made this movie today you would lose the political intrigue stuff mostly like you watch Gladiator the extended cut that has the political stuff and the theatrical cut that one best picture has maybe you know two or three uh, scenes of political intrigue because that's the first stuff you need to go like when, especially when you look at the story of like like the, like this is a random thing like the character of Julius Caesar in the grand scheme of things, you could take him out of this movie and you, mm-hmm. you definitely wouldn't miss him because the movie's called Spartacus, you know. Right. But having him in there adds a layer to it that does make it, it does. neat. That you, you have this person playing this, you know, everyone knows that character mostly from the tragedy written about him by Shakespeare, right? Or alleged right. Shakespeare. But if you, if you believe it like that, but you, people can, conceptualized around that what i got a kick out of was all like the voiceover stuff about the fall of the roman empire and the coming of christ and all this and i'm like these things are all a long time after (laughs) this movie's supposed to be happening and what i found out is like the the american catholic league like forced that to be in there i thought wow there was a time when they had that kind of power in hollywood nowadays no way but uh, yeah just think i mean think about that it would well it would be like akin today of uh, when you had a movie like Man of Steel, let's say there would be like the uh, um, Department of Homeland Security talking about the 278 9/11s that happened in that movie. You know, like kind of yeah, yeah. There would be something like them controlling the fictional universe. Or it's, it's just neat to think about the time that this was made. But it was also something that's very brash. I mean, there's a lot of violence in this movie. If Kubrick had had his way, you'd have seen a lot more. Like he was into the blood and gore and. I found that intriguing because that's never been something I really associated with him. Even when we get around to talking about The Shining, the Gordon, that's relatively minimal when you think about it. And to think about him wanting to do that here is, it, again, it's like Ridley Scott said, oh, I can do that. And then that him and Russell Crowe and CGI killed a lot of people. So 
Yeah. So, and won Oscars for it, darn it. But anyway. Exactly. So, well, I think it's time to do a plot summary for, you know, this one again is one that I don't know if people maybe know about it. Maybe they haven't seen it in a while. So sum up a three hour epic if you can in a few paragraphs here, Kurt. Sure, I'll do my best here. And apologies to any Romans who might be listening uh, yes. if, I'm, if I mess up the names here. But in the first century uh, before Christ, the Roman Republic is rampant with corruption and its menial work done by its armies of slaves. Spartacus, born and raised a slave, is sold to gladiator trainer Batiatus. There he meets Verinia, a beautiful slave from Britain, and they fall in love. After weeks of being trained to kill for the arena, Spartacus turns on his owners and leads the other slaves in a revolt. The uprising soon spreads across the Italian peninsula involving thousands of slaves. The plan is to acquire the sufficient funds to acquire ships from Silesian pirates who could then transport them to lands away from Rome in the south. Uh, the Roman senator Gracchus schemes to have Marcus Glabrus, commander of the garrison of Rome, to lead an army against the slaves that are living in Vesuvius. When Glabrus is defeated, his mentor, Senator and General Crassus, is greatly embarrassed and leads his own army against the slaves. Spartacus and the thousands of freed slaves successfully make their way south only to find that the Silesians have abandoned them. The superior military of Rome proceeds to crush the army of Spartacus. Crassus then finds Verinia and her newborn baby on the battlefield and befriends her. He fails in an attempt to seduce her and out of malice orders that Spartacus and his comrade Antoninus are to engage in a fight to the death and the survivor is to be crucified. Antoninus is defeated by Spartacus who suffers the slow death of crucifixion with his slave companions beside him. But before Spartacus dies, Verinia flees through the influence of Gracchus shows him their son, a free Roman citizen now. That's a good summary, Kurt. I think that really gets us through the the through line of the film. And it is a rather simple plot. It's a slave uprising. It's their plan for overcoming the entire empire, if you will, and how that completely falls apart. <laughs> so it would be like if... Star Wars A New Hope happened, The Empire Strikes Back happened, and then the plan on the Return of the Jedi completely failed. And Luke Skywalker <laughs> and Solo were crucified for their efforts. That would, that would be what yeah, this the, would be. It's the original Rogue One of, uh, of, the, of the 60s. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I mean, I had to compare it to something else. We're talking about a movie that's you know, 57 years old at this point. We've mm -hmm. already done, you know, gone older than that at this, but what's neat to me is all that political side of it or whatever. Like, I feel like this push and pull with these generals and the garrison and the senators, I'm like, this is paths of glory just told in the Roman empire. Again, I can see those same guys with those same machinations, except in, instead of doing it in court, they, they did go brutal and just fight a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the way to talk about this, because the plot is rather simple, and that's the whole thing, is, is rather than just walk through it, because it's we can talk about the big scenes, but let's talk about like the characters and the way that they're portrayed and stuff. And I mean, you have to start with the title character, right? Kirk Douglas as Spartacus. It's one of his most memorable roles, but he didn't win an Oscar for this. And I, I'm i curious, like, do you think that's correct, or do you think that's probably a little backlash from the controversy surrounding the film or what is it you think that maybe people missed or the Academy missed at least in, cause he didn't even get nominated. Yeah. It's like, mm. and he, he is very good in the movie, but like, yeah, maybe this movie maybe just was a little, uh, uh, 
overlooked. Uh, like it was like it, looking back, it just is surprising that a movie this notable that everyone knows is like. Usually, all those movies are nominated for best picture when you like you know like because like Ben Hur was up for everything and won eleven Oscars, but but this movie was overlooked uh, from the story POV, the technical side. Like it won Oscars for cinematography and uh, uh, probably sound and like costume and stuff. But yeah, it was overlooked from like a real critical standpoint. The the nominees for Best Picture that year, just so you know, were The Apartment, which won, The mm. Alamo, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, and The Sundowners. Mm. And Burt Lancaster won for Elmer Gantry as Best Actor. Elizabeth Taylor won for Butterfield 8. Peter Ustinov did win Best Supporting Actor. He's the one actor right. thing. But, you know, writing was... He wasn't nominated, wasn't even thought of. I, I wonder if some of that did play into it. The thing is, is, I, you know, I think about like iconic Douglas performances. And the, the funny thing to think about is, is maybe aside from the baby that was his kid in the movie, he's outlived the entire like cast. So Amazing. he's still with us as, as of this recording in you know summer of 2017. And I'm like, where this even ranks in his oeuvre, I wonder. I know it was important for him. But I try to think about his career, and I go, I don't know where I would even put his portrayal of Spartacus. I think it's strong. It's really good. But I'm I'm saying that by someone who's seen films that was clearly influenced by this film. So it's hard to not watch this and go, oh, that's like the time that Russell Crowe did this, or it's like that time in yeah. King Arthur. And, you know, it's hard to... I mean, one thing I didn't confuse it with was Transformers the last night. Mark Wahlberg little bit. nothing on this. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, really, like, I, I wonder, like, in, if all the things he did in Harm's Way, uh, you know, some of the, the big films he was a part of, I don't know. How big is this in the, the Kirk Douglas lexicon, you think? Well, as far as, uh, notoriety, it would, it's probably the most famous film he did. But as far as, performance i think he is good in the movie i've seen him be better uh i think he's very good and he he makes he's way better than than the character because this you know the screen i don't think the screenplay is that strong and it really is you, you pick and choose some actors a lot of the actors are better than others you know it's, it's pre-random but kirk douglas is one of the better ones but but he i've seen him be a lot better in movies like he was a lot better in uh like in in, in passive glory where you really got to he got to flex his acting muscles a bit more. And this one, it's, it's a lot more physical. And it is pretty good. His performance, like in the first hour of this movie where, I mean, he, it, it takes about an hour for him to say more than 10 words. Yeah. And it's interesting to have like a, you know, a big Hollywood epic with a world famous leading man who barely speaks for the first hour. That, that, that is, I don't know if that's Kubrick or if that's just the screenplay, but that, it, that is a pretty, uh, unique thing of the movie. That's the screenplay. That's, that is completely yeah. the screenplay and the way that Douglas wanted that to slowly unravel and reveal. And it's the thing Kubrick hated. He felt like it kept the, the character so pure, you know, I mean, yeah. you really don't get to understand who Spartacus is until after, like there's two big scenes when he gets captured and sold into slavery and then trained as a, a fighter. They throw Verena at him and like, he's supposed to just take advantage of her and, to use modern phrase, hit it and quit it. And yeah. he's not, he doesn't do that. And so when he bumps into her later, they have this whole respect for each other. That's when you get to like, this guy's got some morality to him. And then he gets in a fight with a, an African slave and he's dead. 
the guy can kill him, but he decides not to. And that moment of mercy, like, really changes the way he operates because he spares a general later on and he yeah. spares somebody else. And then you could even argue when he kills Tony Curtis's character, Antonius, at the end, that he's really just sparing him a more painful death. You know, and uh, I don't, I don't know. To go back to the performance thing for just a sec, I don't know that it's one of his better ones either, though, Kurt. I'll be honest. Like Passive Glory, I think he's better in that than he than he was this, and I think he's better mm-hmm. in another film from the same year as Passive Glory, The Gunfight at the OK Corral. That's a fantastic mm-hmm. performance if you've ever seen it, and he's like really good in it. I, I look at this and I feel like it's sort of obvious that he's playing this character. Like it, it seems like this would have been the thing you wanted him to do, but. I mean, he played Vincent Van Gogh for once, you know, in his career. Mm-hmm. That's so much more of a nuanced performance. This seems so like the caricature of the mighty, rebellious, you know, hero. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't know. I don't know about, it's not as bad as, like, but it's a pretty blueprint. You, you uh, know rebellion. what it is? It's the way Brandon Routh played Superman in Superman Returns. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. It's just too obvious. It's like yeah. the best Christopher Reeve impression you could get, you know? And that sort of feels like what that movie is. And I kind of feel about Douglas as Spartacus the same way. It's like, it's almost too on the point in some way. Well, as, as I understand it, I don't know if this is uh, correct or not. As I understand it, this entire film, like Kirk Douglas being the producer of it and, you yeah. know, getting this movie made is, be- is, is made a, almost out of spite because he wanted to be Ben-Hur yeah. uh, when that movie was made. And at the time, you know, given his stature, he very, could, easily, very easily could have been cast as Ben-Hur, but he wasn't. Charlton Heston was. And he said, what, I still want to do a Roman epic. Somebody write me one. And, you know, then you got uh, – I and, and that's how Dalton Trumbo uh, and them worked together. Yeah. I, I mean, you could also limit to the fact that Charlton Heston is probably a foot taller than him too. And, com- mm-hmm. and commands a little bit more. <laughs> well, I don't know that, you know, he, he commands a lot of presidents. Both of them command tons of presidents. There's no doubt about that. But Heston is a much more imposing and he had done the Ten Commandments. And I think yeah. people just sort of saw him in this thing. It probably irks him even more that he did Ben Hur and then Heston turned around and won best actor for El Cid from the director that he fired working on this movie. So yeah. I'm sure it sticks in his crawl a little bit, but it, does, it, it feels like vanity project and revenge project all in the same light. It would be, oh, yeah. it would be as if, what was it? We did the prestige and what was the other magic film? The illusionist, the illusionist. It would be like if, if one of those was made in spite of the other one directly and the performance <laughs> was informed as such when it really wasn't, it was just competing projects. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, he's good in it, but I'll tell you, he's not my favorite thing in this movie. And I'm, I'm just going to say it now. Lawrence Olivier is my favorite thing in this movie. I, I think I could watch that guy read the phone book on, on a screen for an hour and I would be entertained. That, that man's screen presence and his, it's all, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that he was so great on the stage and just knew how to, roll dialogue off of his off of his palate in a way that just gripped you like he's such a bastard in this movie but you feel for him in some way because he's kind of like well if you like the way kevin spacey portrays frank underwood on on house of cards it's sort of that same thing you're like i shouldn't root for the son bitch but i really like him you know and he's just you get him and i he's my favorite thing in the film by far 
Well, uh, then, then this is awkward because <laughs> I, I'd have to say I was uh, – I'm a fan of Olivier and the, the films I've seen him in, but I was not really a, a fan of this – I was uh, – it's 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 difficult like a lot of the characters in this movie because like you know kubrick was like there's such it's such a like it's not a like kubrick's movies are all very precise this movie was like everyone was kind of doing their own thing acting in their own movie like and like there's the acting style of a kirk douglas and the acting style of olivia and they're totally different uh and i think the the character of crassus is good, but as a villain in this film, I I I I don't think he's he's a particularly memorable villain. Uh, I, I actually I think it's kind of a way. Like, while Olivia is good in the movie, I think it's kind of a a waste of of of, of his uh, of his caliber. Like I, I think of a movie like uh, like Gladiator, like you got Joaquin Phoenix, and I think he he's very much a younger version of. Of Crassus, and he was oh, a yeah. bit more. He was he and he he was a bit more I mean, openly evil and uh, and pathetic uh, and uh, not a character to get behind, but a character. It was easier to get inside of his head. Or I can't I can't put my finger on it, but I just know that like Crassus it, to me was not nearly as effective a villain as Spartacus was uh, a hero. It's like like in the movie like uh, a, a movie I love a movie I love Braveheart. It's like yeah. you know Mel Gibson is. As good as uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who played Edward Longshanks, but like the, like he was as evil as Wallace was was good, and there was a, the, that dynamic was good. But the, the dynamic between Crassus and uh, Spartacus, I mean, like for one thing, they don't see each other like or even know each other's names or whatever until like the uh, like almost the last scene. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a, it's a it's a good character. But as far as like Kubrick movies are concerned, I would say this isn't. Uh, a particularly uh, memorable villain. Well, see, I, I don't even put that on Kubrick. I think, again, that's a product of script, and you've got a producer as the lead actor, so obviously he's getting all the best stuff. I felt yeah. like Olivier was handed a really shallow villain, and instead of playing it as mustache-twirling evil, he brought the nuance of something like Othello to it, of like, Scott really, in his, from his own point of view, is not a really bad guy, but he's forced into these he's just like the rest of rome he's so compromised and so um corrupted that he can't get out of his own way sometimes and he has the same motivations as the joaquin phoenix character in gladiator i mean it's basically because he can't woo a woman that he just gets pissed off to kill the gladiator that's the same thing that happens there's a lot more to it but that's the same thing that happens to gladiator it's it's you murder me over a woman as jack nicholson says in Batman, you know, I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I like the fact that I think he gave what you're not wrong. the The role's not grand, okay. I think he gave what could have been a really like cardboard character something so much more. I just I enjoyed him in it. I I found myself wanting more of what he was doing, and instead of what I got was all the other stuff. But I I just I'm an Olivier sucker though. I think. You know, when he does things, I mean, he can be in something really crappy, and I still think it's pretty good. I, I mean, have you ever seen that Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow? I'm just going to go ahead and say everybody's in trouble. That's not very good, but he's in some, <laughs> quote, archive footage in that, and he's still good in that, in that piece of garbage. Uh, you know what? He's really good in that piece of crap Clash of Titans, Harry Hamlin thing from the 80s. You know, that's a mm-hmm. cheesy movie, but he's good as Zeus. I mean, I kind of... I, you know, that was what I thought Zeus should look like was Lawrence Olivier growing up. So I, 
I know I liked him. I, I'm glad we differed on it though, because that's you know we we watch these things sometimes. We both have the same uh, experience with it. I I liked him, so I want to ask you then what was your what was your favorite performance? If it's not him, and I don't get a sense that it's Douglas, I'm curious as to who you really you know, gravitated toward in the film. Uh, well, it's kind of a tie between uh, two characters because like when I talk about like every actor's like in their own movie, I felt like these two guys were on the same page. And that's, uh, you know, Batidis played by Peter Yushinov and Gracchus played by uh, Charles Lawton. I love, uh, I love both of those characters and the actors and the performances. I love them in their scenes together. As I understand it, Peter Yushinov himself, him and he and he actually wrote the scenes with Gracchus or like, and maybe whatever it is, like those, those scenes are a little bit, uh, uh, better than, uh, the rest of the movie, but I, I really do love Batidas Yusinov, who who did win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this movie, deservedly so. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it made this makes him the only person who's won an Oscar for a performance in a Kubrick movie, uh, and the only other guy that was never nominated was was Peter Sellers in, in Doctor Strange Love, and that's pretty weird in the scheme of, you know, Oscar history. But I just tell you, know, you how screwed up Oscar history is. That's yeah, yeah, a little bit, but. But I think Yusinov is amazing in this movie. He's a he really is like this is one thing that like from the screenplay and everything, it's a great character that is perfectly executed. He is such a scumbag character who definitely doesn't think of himself as a scumbag. He thinks he's just a businessman, you know. But he he's he's very funny, which makes his character really entertaining. Like I love the first scene where he's examining the slaves, you know, at uh, at that uh, mine on the side of a mountain. And he's, his, guy, his servant is holding his umbrella. His, his whole job is to hold the umbrella to block the sun. And when he turns around and sees that the sun's not blocking, he just looks at him and says, the sun's over there. God, would I pay these people. And, <laughs> and he is good. He reminds me a lot of uh, the character that Paul <laughs> – of all things, that the, 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 the Paul, Paul Giamatti played in Planet of the Apes ah. as, the, as this wacky – he was – like the character in Spartacus, he is very much a comic relief character as totally. well as a you – know, total dirtbag and you know he reminds me a lot of that character in, in planet of the apes and also the character that mm -hmm. paul giamatti played in 12 years a slave but uh, who was much less funny but it was yeah kind of the same guy you know who i knew charles lofton's name and i was like i know have i seen him something where is it and it, no it's night of the hunter he directed that mitchum film if you've ever seen that um oh yeah i mean yeah and i didn't realize that until i looked it up later i was like holy cow that's where i know that name from that's a powerful film uh as well and a, and well done and i mean he's a again i think he's good i love peter Ustinov too i'm glad you mentioned him he's a a neat kind of guy and just has a, a i don't know he's got a, a both of these guys have somewhat of the jovial type presence in the film but oh, yeah. that's much more is the comic relief i think you're dead on with that but I feel like both of these guys bring a little bit of lightness from, cause I mean, Douglas is playing this so locked jawed, pissed off serious the whole time that he never like has a moment where he just chills out a little bit. Oh yeah. 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 But is much more of a realistic guy. This is probably the kind of guy you would see in much more as in Rome, like just day to day, like, you know, the slavery is the, is the trade of the day. And that's just, you know, he's just another guy mm. uh, doing his thing. And, and and yeah, and Charles Lawton as Gracchus, I I do love this this guy Charles Lawton. And I've only seen him in a, in really just two movies, this mm -hmm. and the Billy Wilder film uh, Witness for the Prosecution, where he plays this aged lawyer. I think it's based on Agatha Christie book, but it's yeah. a that's a that's a great film and an amazing performance by him. But mostly, I know him as 
the guy who before Spartacus had a tragically short-lived directing career where he made a total of one film and that film was Night of the Hunter and I would say I would say arguably that is the single best film of the 1950s and that's a whole other discussion Ooh, but yeah like he he only made one film and to me it's like he I put him on the directing Mount Rushmore but <laughs> but also as an actor he was uh he's tremendous in, in this movie to the point where he was so good where it's like god it's almost almost like a waste of Charles Laudon where I would totally watch a whole movie about this guy's political career mm-hmm. as opposed to the life of uh, of Spartacus you know, like and like I say it feels like every actor might be in their own movie but those scenes with Peter Usinov and Charles Laudon together I think they were they were they were awesome together and I do love the the arc of uh, but of Peter Usinov of Batitis how he starts off as this you know, slave owner. And over the course of the film and the uprising, little by little, he he just spends the entire second half of the movie being bossed around and ordered what to do and being made in his own way a slave. And I think Mm -hmm. Yusinov plays that very funny when he, he's told, I want you to go over to Crassus and and, and get for, and he's like, I don't really want to do that at all. And, but but he, you know, then he throws some money at him and he goes and does it. Well, even, even in the very end, I mean, that's basically what he's doing is paying for safe passage as he and Farina are heading out, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's still, but he's sort of that, like, he's in it for, he's only in it for the money. He has that arc where he sort of gets a heart about himself the whole time. And he's funny because we laugh with him, but that's his arc through the film. He's, he's almost like the every man we're supposed to follow through this. Cause who can, who the hell can relate to Spartacus? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? And moreover, because it's portrayed the way it is, and look, I, I just talked about how much I like Kirk Douglas and I like him in this movie. You can't relate to that at all. <laughs> I mean, nobody can. Because let's just call it out now. The Christ metaphor here is as heavy as you, they could have just named him J.C. Spartacus for all Big that time. mattered. Yeah. I mean, it's it's as obvious as the rat in The Departed. You know, I mean, it really exactly. is. Yeah. All, all the way down to the learns mercy, sacrifice, talks about sacrificing himself for others, does it eventually, and then dies between a bunch of thieving slaves. On Literally a crucifix. crucified. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, Jesus didn't see the sun. That was the Scorsese tie-in later. That was something different. Yeah. But anyway. But, well, see, now, we, now I know where he ripped off stuff from, too, man. So, <laughs> I've learned through all the years of, like, if you go back through cinema enough, people, what you're going to realize is that Everyone has plagiarized everyone forever, and it will oh, never sure. end. And what makes what's funny to me is I hope I live long enough that in forty years somebody decides to plagiarize a Michael Bay movie, and I want to see what that looks like. That'd be uh, something else. <laughs> that would be. It really would be. So <laughs> probably Bay's kids or something. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we, I, they're kind of smaller characters, but we should talk about Antonius and, and Verita and things. Poor Gene Simmons in a in a late fifties sixties movie for a woman. It's just, I, I'm going to say it again, man. I, Kubrick just doesn't know what to do with these. Now, again, this time it's not really his fault because she's written as the damsel and that's all she is yeah. in this movie or Mary Magdalene or whatever she's supposed to be. But I kind of feel bad for her that she might have been on the set and been like, there are nothing but men here. And I'm really bored <laughs> So with yeah. all of this. They gave her nothing to do. That poor woman, she just stood there and looked pretty. Pretty much her whole character is, is just as an excuse to get to the end of Spartacus seeing that, you know, he has a son that will – a legacy that will live right. on. And, you know, the, yeah, and the wife, yeah, never mind about that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's the whole. Uh, he has a, She's only there to give him a male heir that he knows yeah. is a free citizen. I'm like, God, it just feels so icky. And I know I'm applying my 21st century post-feminist, you know, male knowledge of all of that. <laughs> but you just can't watch this movie and not feel like, why is there even a woman in here? Because I've seen critical stuff about like him and Antonius have this whole relationship we don't know about. I don't know if that's there or not, but hmm. I think people are reading it into it. But it's also because there's a complete lack of women <laughs> in the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, they probably weren't on the set, but they definitely weren't on camera. Uh, that's for sure. So uh, just knowing the 60s. but <laughs> Yeah, for, for, for a movie set in the height of the Roman Empire, there's a very, uh, very small amount of, uh, of sex. Well, they are the Roman Republic. Technically, that's time. that's true. And well, as the old joke goes, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was neither holy, totally Roman, nor an empire. Exactly. So, so yeah, there's that. She's uh, it's kind of a waste. You talk about wasted role. Now, Tony Curtis playing a character basically named Tony. I I got a chuckle <laughs> out of that. I was like, why did she call him Tony? Maybe that was his like stipulation. Like, look, I'll do it, but just you got to give me a fun name. So I like Tony Curtis. I kind of picture him as sort of the lost member of the Rat Pack, maybe. Like he, he really kind yeah. of ran in that same, you know, circle to me. And so uh, I, I've always liked him. This is a use, well, it's not a useless role. It's a nothing role. It's the sacrifice role um, that helps Spartacus get ready to be crucified. But it's not much more. But he's supposed to be like best buddy you know, uh, his chewy to his Han, whatever. Yeah. I, I got a bit of a, almost like a, a sort of surrogate father son relationship by, yeah. by the end of it. In which case, Tony Curtis is way too old to be playing a character who's supposed to be a, 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 even though I don't know, like this is him at the start, like maybe the start of his career, you know, he looks about the same age as, as, uh, as Kirk Douglas and he's got the, and, uh, I didn't know they had uh, a lot of guys from, uh, 1950s New York in uh, in Rome. But, yeah, uh, well, John Wayne once played Fu Manchu. So exactly, he gives a good performance for for sure. Like it's the only thing is the accent does a little stand up a lot, like Harvey Keitel in Last Temptation of Christ with thickest broad like like yeah Bronx accent in Jeru in Jerusalem. I don't I don't know if I buy it. Jesus, I don't know if these apostles are great. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same same thing. Well, that was more Brando, I guess, than Keitel. But either way, <laughs> you get the point. But they had an actual black guy play the African slave. It wasn't That's just right. a man that was tan. So that you know, I'll give him credit for that. So um, yeah, and, of course he gets speared in the back. So it's horrible, but. He is, but but about him, uh, uh, Woody Strode, uh, very, a very tiny role, but he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this. And Woody Strode is actually he, you know, he only says about you know five words in this movie too. But the few words he says, I love his this character that we see. Like he shows up as the one of the veteran gladiators of the camp, and when Spartacus just tries to befriend him, he says, "I don't want to know your name." Yeah, it's like what? It's like I don't want to befriend you because I'm gonna, I might have to kill you one day. And then, of course, it comes down to that scene with, where he should be killing him. Like, it's the thumbs down moment, like from Gladiator. And, and he can't do it because he knew, because he, probably because he's talked to him that one time and he knows him too well. But yeah, he is, he is good. I, I do like Woody Strode. He has a, a, a very, like, unique presence. He actually, and he actually was a, a really good actor. And he was in a bunch of John Ford movies. And I know mainly from his, is one scene in the opening credits of Once Upon a Time in the West, but I did like him. I think if you made this movie today, 
I'm reminded immediately, immediately of Gladiator, the 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 Jaiman Hansu character yes, who's in, yes. who's in the whole film. If I made this movie today, it's like never mind Tony Curtis. This is the guy you need as the as his like as you know his his co leader of this of the the rebellion there. But that's what I was like wanting. I think from this film for the reason that he spares Spartacus is that for some reason he has become part of the cause and he decides you know what. This guy needs to live, and so that's when he sacrifices himself. It's all foreshadowing so that Spartacus can learn to do that later for mm-hmm. someone else, even though he kills somebody when he does it. But he's sparing Tony from the crucifixion death. Um, right. So it's more noble that way. But I kind of wanted – we've already had the seeds of the rebellion there with Spartacus. At that, I wish that had been planted before. Like I, I felt like it would, it would be more impactful for me if he did that knowing that I've – this guy's got to live so that everything can go on. You know, it's uh, Jen and, and a dude on the beach that decide, you know, they're going to die because they know that the plans have got to go onto the Death Star and <laughs> live, right? So I'm just, you know, we're just going to go back to that. But I mean, well, like, that's what I mean. I think that's half of the fun of doing something like this is we're looking for like the Kubrick stuff. There's no Kubrick stuff in this movie. So if we talk <laughs> about this movie, is how can you relate this to a modern audience? Because Kurt, you're probably the youngest person I know in the world that's ever even seen this. Most people, you <laughs> see Spartacus now, they talk about that show that's been on. Right, which has plenty of your Game of Thrones style sex and blood and crazy sure. stuff in it, right? But getting, how would you get somebody to watch this that's twenty? You know, as well because the themes are still today. Like you can see it. It is, and I was thinking about that just overall with this movie. Is like this is one of the few old Hollywood epics that like. I got all my recommendations for movies like that, you know, way back from like from from my dad. He was the guy who would tell me, "Oh, you got to watch this. You got to watch High Noon. You got to watch Fistful of Dolls or whatever." And he never, or you got to see like Ten Commandments. He recommended that. He never recommended Spartacus once. Uh, and I always, I was wondering that, like uh, all this time, it's like it's such a notable movie, and I never, like, you really never hear anyone talk about this movie aside from the "I'm Spartacus" scene. And then it was, and then I finally, you know, when I sat down and watched it, I was like, oh, that's why, because it's not all that, uh, it's, you know, there's not, like, aside from the I'm Spartacus scene, there isn't really a real standout moment, like, you know, like the, like a Ben-Hur chariot race scene. Yeah. Like, you he, got the battle scene, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things, like, when they're leading the troops out of the mountain and it's shot in that one shot in the foreground and there's all that smoke and the horses are riding up, like, it's a gorgeous looking thing, but it's like watching a moving Monet painting or something. Kinda, yeah. Yeah, and the battle scene, even like, it's cool. But I, I saw better in Ben Hur. I saw cooler stuff in the Ten Commandments when the, you know, the Jordan crashed over all the, you know, Egyptians. I, I think I had seen that done better, and I wonder if that's Kubrick trying to figure out how to do something on that larger scale. And I mean, it is impressive if you look at it, the way that that's shot and, and pieced together and everything. There's a lot of people in that scene, but I even feel like there are scenes in gone with the wind in 1939 that are better battle scenes than in Spartacus. Like I, I really wanted to see these great battle scenes and I watched it and I was like, yeah, I saw a lot better in older films. And then I saw it done a lot better later on too. Like it's, I mean, Say what you will about Braveheart and kind of its, its you know cheesiness that that it had. I mean, there's a cheesy mm-hmm. factor to that movie, but there's some awesome fighting in that. Hell, the first Highlander movie has better battle scenes to me, man. That may be yeah. blasphemous <laughs> for people, but I think it looks better. 
It does, and yeah, and again, this all this all like every flaw in this movie, it's very easy to point to, and there's no, I don't know if there's a particular person to blame, like it's not Kubrick's fault, but it, it's it's you know it's it, it that is why there's a certain lack of cohesion, uh, you know, why certain like who knows maybe who knows maybe if Anthony Mann made this. Maybe it would be a lot better. Maybe it would have been worse. Maybe the action would have been better. But you know, but who knows? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, well, if you wanted to know what it would look like if Anthony Mann make it, go watch El Cid. Yeah. yeah you, there's your answer. Is it would look like that? And if you haven't seen El Cid, I do recommend it. It's it's a more watchable mm. film than this. Like, there's nothing wrong with this movie in particular. There's just nothing that makes me go like, yes, champion it. And so I understand why this one maybe missed on people is because. It was just another three-hour sword and sandal epic. It was just kind of like, eh, you know, fine. Yeah. I mean, we get those. Like, Hollywood's always obsessed with these. They're probably no more obsessed with anything than this, maybe, than King Arthur, which they can never do right. They've never done right, in my <laughs> opinion. Like, it's ever looked right, you know, in right. any form. Sorry, Transformers fans. But it's never, <laughs> it's never worked. And... I, but I think they're just obsessed with the idea of, it, of trying to get that to look right. Because it is a cool idea. I mean, it's one thing to have guns and missiles and shit shooting at each other. But, like, there's something really, like, primal about men running at each other with just pieces of metal, swinging them to try to kill each other. Because the sword back in those days, like, it was really more for stabbing than it was for Conan the Barbarianing people and stuff. Oh, yeah. You, you got hit with a sword, it was more likely to knock you out than to do anything. And the point was to get you on the ground so I can stab you, not so I can cut your friggin' head off. And that's, it's not a lightsaber duel as much as it's a blunt instrument so I can stab you to death. So. Yeah, it's like a blunt butcher knife fighting. Yes. Was, was the order of the day. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine that. Yeah. I try to think about like if you made something like this today and you gave it to a director that really understood what the, the visceral violence of it was, like, you could go in extremes. You could get like Michael Mann doing it, and so you have there'd be a lot of lot of nuanced character and stuff. But you would you would know everything about the damn sword that you ever wanted to know because he knows everything yeah. about the guns, right? Because his <laughs> movies, in a lot of ways, are good gun porn, uh, especially his, yeah. his uh, uh, crime movies and stuff. But when you like somebody like Tarantino, right, would get the visceral like violence of what that would be like. Rob Zombie would take it way too far, but Tarantino would probably know how to do it. And, and make you buy it and see, cause that was the thing I, that I, I did feel like was Hollywood wash over with the fight scenes. Cause I felt like that's not like for everything this movie's trying to be so historically accurate and all this exposition and, and less action and more talky. When they get to mm-hmm. doing the action, it's just cookie cutter. I'm like, that's not like, that's not at all how that works. And I know, I know that now because I've studied history and I, I watch way too much history channel and stuff like that. But <laughs> even then you could kind of see like, that wouldn't really be how that worked. Yeah. Uh, that's why, that's why I'm, I am a big fan of, of gladiator for a number of reasons. And you know, one of them is the, the action and that, and that violence. So like as much as it was, uh, they were going for a history thing when it, when it came down to the violence, it really was like, it was action movie. Uh, not not. It wasn't as far as horror movie, but it really it was nice and brutal when it came mm-hmm. to those swords and you know stab like stabbing a guy like <laughs> yeah. Russell Crowe he gets he stabs a guy with two swords yeah. and then takes them out of him and cuts the guy's head off with 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 a double swing. Moments like that and that that is that is kind of missing 
from this movie. And that's, I think that is something Kubrick would have done if he made this movie like, you know, 1985 or something. Oh, if they'd have let him do it then, he would have had it that way. I mean, he wanted yeah. it to be that way and they just said no and, and cut it back. Think about the, the big battle scene Jon Snow led last on the, uh, you know, most recent season of Game of Thrones, right? Oh, yeah. The, the way those battle scenes go, like, that's, I think, kind of what I wanted, you know, was or what maybe what I wish this movie had. I didn't really want it necessarily because I knew I wasn't going to get it in the movie in 1960. But, yeah. and, I mean, just think for a minute, can you imagine a 1960s crowd watching, you know, something like the Battle of Blackwater? <laughs> They'd be running out. They'd be running out of the room. I mean, there would be pitchforks and fire in the street. Big time. But, um, but that would almost be funny to see. So, right. uh, where's my DeLorean so I can go do that? Anyway, <laughs> I, but the themes of this whole film, you know, the, the rebellion and the struggle for freedom and the whole thing of like the common man wanting a better life for his future and setting that with gladiators in Rome and. I, I don't know. I mean, again, those are universal themes that just get repeated over and over. And, and I think they do because they work. That, that's how people can relate to. I mean, the, the through line of, of something like, uh, of mice and men and the grapes of wrath. I mean, there's the characters and you buy into their story and stuff, but it's really just about people trying to make it better for tomorrow, you know, mm -hmm. and trying to have a better life. And I mean, the, you know, Spartacus dies horribly. But he dies knowing that his son is a free Roman citizen, which is what he was fighting for all along to begin with, right? So he gets what he wants. He just not the way he wanted it necessarily. Yeah, that is something about this movie over, overall. It's like, you know, well, I don't think the dialogue is all that great. I can't really fault like the, the overall, the plot and the story. Which uh, I can't. I don't. I don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is fiction. But it well, is really, almost it, none of it is real. So it's uh, yeah, it's, very I loose. got that feeling. But <laughs> yeah, but it is a it is a, a really good uh, story, and I, I definitely got like you know, a gladiator. We're talking about that a lot, but I got a little bit of flares of uh, Django Unchained. The idea of the hmm. the slave who becomes uh, free and then you know goes and then kicks the asses of everyone who you know gave him shit when he was a when he was a slave. Uh, and and I do love the. Uh, it's a pretty cool structure. This idea of a slave, a gladiator revolt. Uh, this like I I I, it, I I find it amusing. This idea that they didn't really prepare for that. They spend all they spend every single day training these people how to kill people, and then. What do you know? What you know? They're they're really not prepared for the day when they snap, and then they decide to kill you. Right. And I and I, but it is a pretty awesome story. And like I do like Spartacus. You know, he's not about revenge, really. You know, like the only guy he's revengeful against is probably Batiatus and the, his the the guy who was like the captain of the guards and the trainer in the camp. And really, he's not about like let's overthrow Rome. He is more about it is like a. Uh, the Moses thing of like, you know, the let my people go. He's all about like, let's just try to be free. We're like, and we don't have to kill people to do it, but our aim is to be free. I don't want to be emperor or anything. You know, it's, a, it's all in the aim of, 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 of something good. It's trying to break away and set up their own place, their own lifestyle, like to have their own. It's, it's the independent story, you know, Americans mm -hmm. can relate to that. It's that whole thing. And what, what I find intriguing and neat about it is that 
historically, they, the undoing of the Spartacus Rebellion was that he kept going back to pillage Roman cities. And nobody really <laughs> knows why, but he just did. And that ultimately, you know, got him caught. But I like the idea that, like, they put their trust in these other people and they show up and they're not friggin' there. <laughs> so yeah. They just let them down. It's like they took our money and they left. It's, yeah, who it's, knew pirates were untrustworthy? <laughs> right. Well, you know what? It's the... It's the baggage holder dropping the uh, the bag full of money at the end of the <laughs> killing. It's just like, what yeah. difference does it make? You know, it's shoot me <laughs> now. You know, I mean, it's that same uh, character from from uh, Sterling Hayden. And I, I, but I saw that in this this time, and I'm like, that's it's neat to be able to connect that little through line from early Kubrick to even more early Kubrick like this. And it's like that. Hey, you know, I wonder if that was him, if that was in the script as such, but it's yeah. something they really emphasize that they get there and nobody's home. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, it's that whole uh, joke about like, you see those two boys over my shoulder, they're going to help me kick your ass. And then the guy's like, two boys where? And you turn around and they gone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh no. So I, I've found that I, I laughed at it. I thought it was neat. And it is the undoing of a good rebellion because the next thing you know is that here comes the Roman army and you're like, Oh, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, they have no chance at all against these guys. It's almost the way you feel about like uh captain Miller's patrol in saving private Ryan in that final battle. If the, if the uh, air support didn't get there in time, they were dead. Like they were all, I mean, oh, yeah. most of them were anyway, they were about to get really squashed. <laughs> and then the, the people you want show up and all is well, but uh, you know, there would have been no Matt Damon going home, at, you know, had that gone the way of Spartacus here. So. Oh, for sure, and yeah, and Spartacus, it is a very, it's a very realistic story of like this is what would happen if you tried to lead a revolt against, you know, the Roman Empire, which stretched across what was it, half the planet or whatever that was. Yeah. Well, it it would be like okay, let's go back to Return of the Jedi for a minute, or whatever. Let's say they don't get the shield down. And the Death Star wipes out all the, the, you know, rebel frigates and Darth Vader kills Luke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, the, or the Emperor does. And they're like, that's the end of that. You know, so yeah. there, there it is. You know, everybody's hung up on a torch and we're frying Ewoks for dinner. I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, maybe that would have been better. I don't know. But, but I mean, that's, that's kind of what happens at the end here. So, uh, oh, yeah. it's, yeah, uh, I, I, I like the final fight between him and Antonius, though. Tony. I'm just going to call him Tony. Yeah. I, I like the way that goes down because it is, it's the best sword fight in the movie. It's the most personal one, too. And I feel like if Kubrick had control over anything, it's how that went down and how it was shot and, and played out. And I think you get, it's, it's probably Tony Curtis's best stuff in the film. And I think Douglas really gives a lot to it, too. I liked that whole sequence of the fight and how he dies. Yes, I'm, I'm I'm conflicted on the scene because I love the scene and like the way it ends, like character wise with those two people. I think that that's like that's actually like really well done. Like I would say the last 30 minutes of the entire movie is like it got, it kind of decided to suddenly get really good in the in the in, in the tail end. Yeah. But I and I, I but here's something I really hated and I don't know who to blame for this one, but it's like they tease us. Crass is saying. Uh, once he finds out who Spartacus is, he says, you and Antoninus are going to duke it out in the, the Colosseum, like the Roman arena. So I'm thinking, oh, man, like I, I didn't like I was thinking, oh, I know. I don't I didn't know this movie was going to end in a big, you know, fight in the Colosseum. That's probably going to look in, insane with the budget of this movie. 
And then very suddenly, Kirk Douglas spits in Olivier's face and said, now we're just going to do it right here in the dark at two in the morning. It's like, <laughs> oh, come on. Like for a movie that cost like $12 million and, that, and that at that time, that was about $99 million today. It's like that is that was weak. Like yeah. as far as like the spectacle, it's like all this, you know, this like this giant epic and they did a nice job with the battle and then to follow it up with this climax where, you know, it's involving, you know, there's like. 10 people in the whole scene. That part I was disappointed by. But the drama of the scene of they're both trying to kill the other guy very intensely as like mm-hmm. like you would in any other fight to the death. But their reasoning is it, it's they, they each want to kill the other guy so the other guy doesn't suffer more. Right. Uh, and it, it's, it really is a great uh, – it, it is a great fight scene. It is a really powerful moment when when Spartacus does he gets the drop on him and 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 he finally kills him. And it reminds me what it reminded me of was uh, the scene in in Spielberg's Hook, which definitely stole this <laughs> scene when when Rufio was killed by Peter. But and, but it's a good moment and like in his, his last lines as he says to Peter Pan, you know, I wish I had a dad like you. And Tony Curtis says the exact same thing yep. of like you're more father to me than than my father. It's and you know it's uh, but it's it's a it's a very it is a very good scene. But I got to say, as far as like you know, like 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 as like, <laughs> like the movie magic and what Hollywood can do is like really that that's the best you got. Yeah, no, it's it doesn't fit in that. And I think that's the reason I did like it because I felt let down by the battle scenes a little bit. That it was Me like too, yeah. eh, so maybe I liked it more because it was more personal and it. Yeah, it would have been great had it been in a big arena and all that stuff. The honest truth is that they were shooting this in Death Valley and they were probably up against a huge deadline and couldn't get it done. And didn't have, they had already used all the extras budget at that point for the battle yeah. scenes. So I like that it's more personal and that it's not this sprawling thing that it probably should have been. You're right, but I like the more personal touch to it. And the fact that, again, like we said, you got two guys who are trying to kill each other for the same reason. I don't want you to mm. suffer. Because I know what crucifixion does. And, I mean, it, crucifixion is an, an elaborate way to suffocate someone. It's really oh, yeah. what it is. And it it's a horrible way to die, you know, and and still is to this day. And so it's just a, you know, I could see these characters would know exactly what that meant, what that fate was. And both being noble as they were, wouldn't want the other to have to suffer it. Oh yeah, it's 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 a really it is very it is very tragic and sad. And so it also is like really dark. The idea of you know <laughs> I'm going to kill you, and in winning that fight, I'm going to suffer the most I've ever in my life. Like each character is really trying to sacrifice themselves. It's like 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 I said, it is it's 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 a great scene. Like like I'm surprised. Like I never heard of that scene. Uh, you know, when I whenever heard t- people talk about this movie, I never no one ever mentions that scene. Was like that's the best scene in the movie. No, it's it's a fantastic one. I agree. It's I'm gonna say now, I, I it's limited by a little bit of the fact that what comes after it is so obvious in some way. Like it's just I guess I'm just jaded by the fact of I, I want the movie to end, and I understand why it needs to end the way it does with Verena bringing the sun and the crying on the crucified feet and all that goodbye my life goodbye yeah. my love business. It's the time and era and stuff, but I just feel like that's such a romantic goofy ending to something that's tried to not be that in a lot of ways, yeah, but it's it, very it drawn out. It. Yes. Goes on way too long. Like 
this entire movie. I think you're right. Hmm. There, there's a fan edit of this that is probably an hour and 45 minutes that would be awesome. And probably maybe somebody's done it. Maybe John Jansen's done it, but, yeah. uh, or he should. But boy, what we've got is it, like a lot of things in this movie, just goes on way too long and it's overwrought with emotion that's hard to buy again from a character that I felt like had nothing to do. This woman has been. I have no reason to invest in her other than Spartacus wants to be with her, you know, but yeah. I don't really care. You know, that that's not what his whole thing was anyway. He just wanted land. So I don't know. It, I just, oh, yeah, it's, it, like, it's flat. It just like I watch it. I'm like, and sing, you know? So. Oh yeah. Like, like in gladiator, what, the, you know, what they did is they gave that, that kind of farewell moment. They gave that to the guy who knew him best, like Jaiman Hansu, who, yeah. who like buries that little, the, the, the little statues of the family. And says, you know, one day I'll meet you, but uh, I'll see you again, but not yet. It's like that was way more powerful than mm-hmm. who than this interaction with these two people that are that should be madly in love. And on a side note, I'm not really a fan of the score, and oh. I got really sick of the romantic theme of these two characters. It was yes. so like if you did a sketch of uh, like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch and you wanted to make fun of cheesy music, just use that that theme from the, the love theme from Spartacus. Yeah, Alex North, not not on my high list of composers. I was I was yeah. like, it's it's obvious. I mean, it's like, mm. and and I won't deny that that's probably Douglas in the studio going sound like this, and that yeah. he just did what he was told. Uh, particularly back in those days. I mean, I, I mean, and that still happens today. I mean, I, I could get that, but it's not a, you know, that's the other thing I think maybe hurts the film in the long run, Kurt. There's not a memorable score. Like I can't hum you the, I can hum you the thing to Ben Hur if you want and stuff, but I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do, or if you hear like the music in Lawrence of Arabia, like you know that music. For sure. Yeah. This movie, I, I wouldn't know it from anything else. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, my first real understanding of this was a movie or whatever is from the Tom Hanks joint, that thing you do. And the drummer's always talking about, I am Spartacus and (laughs) said at a time when that would have been the movie he had seen. And he wrote a drum jazz riff around that idea, but there's (laughs) nothing about that that screams this movie. You know, and I didn't expect it to, but I just sort of laughed at myself. I was like, man, no wonder that guy was a one hit wonder. Last time the wrong movie. Maybe that was the point Hanks was making. I don't know. So, (laughs) well, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts and popcorn ratings for the film. So, what are yours for Spartacus? Well, like I've said, I could tell almost every step of the way that this was not a Kubrick movie by and large. And that's simply because it's the only movie Kubrick made that he didn't write, he didn't cast, he didn't prepare himself, you know, spending years of pre production. And or even years editing or whatever, he jumped into someone else's movie with a plot he did not create and actors he did not cast. Who knows what who he actually would have cast as Crassus and and, and Spartacus? Well, you know, we'll never know. Not to mention the costumes he didn't approve, uh, and the sets and and so forth. He and he did not have final cut, and so I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Kubrick made his own, you know. Roman epic if it would have been totally different characters, if it would have been like Gladiator, or if it would have been like Paz of Glory, or if it would have been like The Killing, or who who knows what it could have been. But I can't say I like this movie, sadly. Uh, it was like a podcast co-host of mine, uh, uh, Franco uh, Asmael, I did a few uh, pods with him, and he said, when I said I was going to see it, he said, yeah, it's fine, but don't expect a Kubrick movie. 
And I didn't, I, I kind of needed that going in because if you went into this expecting this is like a, you know, a Roman epic from the guy who made 2001 a space odyssey, you'd be like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But with lower expectations, you know, you got to, you know, even, but even with the lower expectations, it's like, I just, I can't say I like it. I like, I like elements of it. And most of those tend to be the certain performances. Like I like Kirk Douglas. I loved Peter Yusinov and Charles Lawton and Woody Strode. But the rest of the actors, they range from forgettable to outright terrible. Like John Dahl, the guy who plays Glabrous. That is one guy in the movie I just said, this guy sucks. And I don't, I, I don't often just outright say a guy just flat out is terrible. But it's like, that guy, you got no business being in a Stanley Kubrick movie. But again, Kubrick didn't cast the guy. Mm-hmm. But I think like this movie, it's, it is way too long. Like you look one more time, you look at Gladiator, a movie which managed to do a similar story with a much, a very similar scope. But did it 30 minutes shorter and with way more impact. I think it's a good story. Can't deny that uh, with some good characters. Um, but honestly, this is the only Kubrick movie I've seen where I think, you know what? Someone, they ought to remake it. And they re- they have sort of with the TV, with the TV show. But I, what, what I mean is like with remakes, I think remakes should be saved for movies they didn't get right the first time. Like they need to take another crack at it. And Spartacus falls into that category for me. Uh, and like those first two Kubrick movies, you know, Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss were so minor we didn't even review them. Mm-hmm. You, can over, you can overlook those movies. But Spartacus is such an epic and is such a notable movie and a classic Hollywood movie that it's, it's, it's impossible to overlook and just give a pass to. So I kind of have to like accept it and realize the – by today's standards, I, I got to say it's a little bit of a mediocre movie. I can't just give it a pass. So I, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty disappointed with the movie, sadly. And uh, it gets a small popcorn from me. You know, I reserve my medium popcorn rating sometimes for movies that could have been so much better, but they just screw out. You know, somewhere along the way, it just misses. And that's the very definition of this film. It looks good. There's some really great looking shots in it. There's nothing really spectacular, but it looks great. Douglas is fine in it. I liked Olivier. You didn't, but you know, I, I got that out of it. There's some fun in it. There's a good three line, but it's really long and it's really boring at times. I'm not going to lie. And I'll be honest with you. I don't think you have, if you're a Kubrick like fan or you're getting into Kubrick and you're like, I want to watch all the Kubrick films that we've done here or whatever. I mean, you could watch some just clips on YouTube and be okay. Like, I really Pretty don't, you don't have to sit and watch this. You know, I, I mean, I found the two VHS cassettes for five bucks at an antique store flea <laughs> market thing. And I was like, eh, you know, and I was like, eh, that's about what it's worth. You know, like, you know, it may give me an excuse to use my functioning VCR. So, <laughs> which is, I may be the only person listening to this that still has one. But, um, I mean, I, I kind of feel about this movie like it's there's nothing in it that says Kubrick. There's nothing in it that's really like demonstrably Kirk Douglas either, other than that chin. Mm. And I'm yeah. like, eh, you know, it's fun, but it's not really great. And like, if I were to tell somebody like, hey, you watch, I'd probably tell people, yeah, watch El Cid, watch Ben Hur. You get a yeah. better, you get the same kind of story and better. And watch Gladiator, you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even the, just the theatrical of Gladiator. Ridley and his director's cuts, I could spend years on that, but. Yeah. I mean, watch watch that. I mean, I think this movie is. Uh, I haven't seen the TV show, so I'm curious if you know, people have seen it. Tell us how it is. You know, right on the mm-hmm. the Facebook posts and stuff, and let us know what you think of it. I I'm curious to see how 
good that is compared to this. And if there's anything at all other than just the basic story and the, the title character in it, or if they just are like, we're not touching that thing from the 50s. That's really more about Red Scare and let's all, you know, I'm not going to name names than it is about anything yeah. else. And we didn't really talk about that movie, but that's a big part of what this movie was made for. It feels more like a movie that has a political statement behind it mm-hmm. that isn't influenced by the director. And that's a hard thing to watch. It's the same way that you can see Fincher stuff in alien three, but you also understand why he eventually just walked away from it. Cause there's so many hands in that movie that you don't know whose it really is. Exactly. It's, it's probably as much Sigourney's as, as anything else. Just to put a point on that. And this is probably as much Douglas as it is a Kubrick film. So I go medium popcorn on it. And the fact that it's just mediocre, I feel like it's mm-hmm. so painfully mediocre, but I didn't go into it with any expectations because I hadn't heard a lot about it. Nobody had ever built it up to me. In fact, I even asked my dad about it because he was, you know, like you, he's a big fan of this guy. He's like, I don't even really remember that one. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, that tells me all I need to know because my dad is Mr. Sword and Sandal movie. And I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, no, if he doesn't remember it, then it didn't make any impression at all. So, um, medium popcorn. I, I'm interested to move to the next one too because I know the story about Lolita. And I know what it's about, and I've seen the Jeremy Irons version. I've never seen the Kubrick version mm. either. So this is going to be a first time for both of us next time with Lolita. Uh, much different subject matter two years later um, than what we're dealing with here. And I, Well, as we know, this is the last time Kubrick didn't have complete control over what the story was, and probably the reason. But you know what? For as much as we want to dismiss Spartacus, because it was a hit, it gave him the end with the studios to then do the things he wanted to do. And we're oh, yeah. actually going to get to some stuff that's, you know, is considered classic cinema. And I'm curious to look at something like Dr. Strange love and clockwork orange. And, you know, 2001 is going to be a different discussion, but to mm. look at things and see where do these hold up? What does he say? And why is this this way? You know, it's, it's going to be fun to ride through this. So, Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Filmstrip. Of course, if you follow us on uh, our Facebook page, continuous or our uh, webpage, continuousplaypodcast.com uh, slash movies, you can find all of our old episodes there. You can also find all of it in the back catalog on our iTunes feed, Stitcher, and Google Play. We're on all of them. And hey, folks, uh, we got some recent reviews in, some really good ones on iTunes. Really appreciate that. If you're using you know iTunes for your podcatcher and stuff, leave us a good review. It really helps people find the show. We don't do donations drives and that kind of stuff we just put out a lot of content we've got over 200 episodes there a lot of variety i mean you know we'll we'll do kubrick movies and then we'll turn around and kurtz on a movie like anaconda you know so it's <laughs> it just depends you know on, on what hits us we got a lot of stuff there so check it out uh, let us know what you think and if you're on one of the other ones stitch or google play leave us a review it helps other people find the show that's all we really want to do is just try to get the podcast out to as many people as possible we appreciate your support catch up with us on social media and we'll be glad to interact with you there as well Till next time for kurt i'm jay thanks for listening to film Strip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. <laughs>